And welcome to another edition of the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. I'm, I'm uh, practicing inflection. Yeah. So just <laughs> you, you had For a, the 58th time, I'm trying to come bring up something new. Or 57th time? It's 58th. You had a broad, pleased with your self-smile. Right there, too. <laughs> uh, here we are back in the studio in, 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 an, uh, in a twist. We're doing this in the morning. Yeah. So good morning, Jeff. Good morning. <laughs> kind of in the mood for coffee. Uh, but you can tune into our other podcast, that's, that's Coffee right. Coffee Vana. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've touched on coffee more often than we expected to. <laughs> so welcome to the Beer Vana podcast with me, of course, is Jeff Allworth, author of The Secrets of Master Brewers, The Beer Bible, and in 2019, look for The Widmer Way. You can find him blogging at Beer Vana. And with me is Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University. You can find him tweeting about beeronomics, probably, uh, sadly, about his national soccer team. Yes, this is the day after uh, the England team crashed out of the World Cup, but in the semifinals, so everybody is pretty is pretty happy with their performance. Yeah, uh, it does bring up the intriguing. Uh, and sometimes the most entertaining match of the World Cup, which is the meaningless third place match. Uh-huh. But this, for beer fans, is a pretty big one. That's right, the Beer Cup. England versus Belgium. We were we were excoriated for excluding Belgium from our finals. We had uh, England versus Germany. Right. Uh, Germany. By the way, to follow up with the poll. Uh, Ger- oh, that's right, the poll. The, yeah, Germany uh, lost both both polls yours and mine yeah and on I th- our twitter feeds i think that might have been one of those um sampling error issues because uh we are english speakers and therefore i have a lot of english like people who live in britain fans uh or followers who flooded the zone after a while well okay but this, and so where this are the german speakers well they don't follow my 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 uh this is a very interesting econometrics question right so is this a is this a true reflection of the global attitude toward beer culture? No. But we were polling our own uh, listeners, readers, followers on Twitter. Right. Uh, so yes, you're right. So it's a, it's a selected sample. Uh-huh. But among those who listen to us, that's right. they chose England over Germany. That's right. Which, by the way, it's also followed through in the World Cup because Germany crashed out quite ignominiously at at the group stage. Yeah. So there's uh, some kind of wisdom there. So we can go back now. We can just think about England versus versus Belgium beer culture. Um, but it'll be settled on the field in soccer terms That's on right. Saturday. That's right. And and the other match, uh, Croatia versus France, is not one that we would particularly associate with beer. But, um, but there is French beer. So I guess go France. There must be Croatian beer, maybe. There must be Croatian beer, yeah. Croatia, by the way, has four million people. Croatia is the size of the state of Oregon. Yeah, that's uh, that's. Uh, I enjoyed the fact that Oregon's population is the closest of all the states to, to Croatia's. Right. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And if Belgium had made it, that'd be two tiny countries who had yeah. never won a World Cup before competing for the title, which would have been nice. That would have been uh, pretty cool. Uh, all uh, Croatia have a really good team. They're fun and exciting to watch, and they just never quit, which is quite amazing. I expected them to wilt uh, because they had played two. Uh, uh, full extra time periods in the previous two games, and I was sure that around 60, 70 minutes, as was everybody, that they would just start falling, falling down on dead legs. Uh, but no, they just the kept opposite fighting. happened. Yeah, the opposite happened. They just found a way. Um, that's pretty. It was impressive. So, uh, it was. so uh, tip of the hat to them. They deserved it. They're the better team. Uh, it should be a fun and entertaining final. Hopefully, if the France isn't too cagey like they were in the semifinal. Yeah, they will be. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to root for Croatia because, come on, little guys like that. Yeah, well, I'm a pluralist, uh, and I like it. And there's actually a very small population of countries that have ever won a World Cup. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I heard on the, the announcer say that if Croatia made it in, they would only be the 13th country ever to play in the finals. Something like that, yeah. Which is crazy. Yeah, it is. That's a, there's so a that's real 1% up there that dominates that elite play. That's exactly right. And so it would be really fun uh, to have a new, a new champion, especially one from such a small country. All right, so uh, getting, back to, <laughs> getting back to the beer. Uh, wait, we haven't mentioned the weather yet. It's lovely. It's actually huh. going to be hot today, so it's a good thing we're doing this in the morning. That's right. We're getting our first hot snap of the year. And I have, just in news of the Allworth household, a brand new... Uh, window air conditioner. Ah, you which finally is a, gave in. It's a concession to global warming. Usually yes. I could just, you know, we'd have like one or two snaps. They would be a couple of days long. Yep, that's right. You could survive it. But Never now, needed it. Now it's just too much. Yeah, so. I, I gave in a couple of years ago. And now yeah. we have a few to keep the bedrooms cool. Yeah, that's it. You got to be able to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So today we're going to look at a part of the beer industry that doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, and which, frankly, isn't that sexy. Hey, come on, it's economics, good sexy. Uh, <laughs> but it's hugely important in terms of the beer you're able to drink and the way you're able to drink it. Well, it's policy, I suppose. What we're talking about is state laws, which may limit where you can buy a beer, when you can buy it, how strong it is, who can sell it, or how it gets from brewery to your hand. We're going to speak to a special guest who has a front row seat at a years-long battle playing out in Maryland that illustrates just how thorny the thicket of beer laws can be. Uh, so... As an economist, uh, I relentlessly talk about incentives, uh, and policy, of course, shapes incentives. So sometimes right. policy is directly affects what you can do with beer, and also there's all kinds of indirect effects. And one thing I was uh, I have been uh, asking the beer twitters about is when I was in uh, Canada, I was in British Columbia uh, for a conference, uh, and I was eagerly sampling all the amazing beer up there. Uh, we'll have to get up there soon. But I noticed that the ABVs were lower in general, and I don't know if that was a small sample bias, but people seem to confirm that that may be true. So their IPAs tend to be around 5%, uh, in the mid-fives. Really? In Oregon, there tend to be, yeah, mid-fives to low sixes is what I encountered, and here, usually mid-sixes to low sevens is what you get. So, which I I prefer the BC, (laughs) the BC beers. Uh, So it made me think, I wonder if if there's some kind of uh, uh, connection between uh, regulation or taxing or something that, yeah. Or is that a cultural thing? I was in Victoria a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I was struck by how strong the uh, kind of British lineage was in the beer yeah. that was made there. So I that could also be a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about beer laws. We're going to use the the uh, the case in Maryland to talk about how beer laws affect uh, how you interact with craft beer. But first, of course. We have to talk about the news. All right, so it seems like the merger and acquisition market seems to be uh, hotting up again. Yeah. Uh, There have been three acquisitions since our last podcast. Uh, A big news item, London's Beavertown, one of the city's leading craft uh, breweries sold a minority stake to Heineken, although the size of the stake was not disclosed. Uh, next, Australia headquartered and Kieran-owned Lion announced that it was acquiring another London brewery, uh, 
outright four pure brewing companies. Did I get that right? Yeah, I guess so. <clears throat> Finally, Constellation Brands, the company that paid uh, 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 strikingly <laughs> billion dollars for Ballast Point uh, two and a half years ago, at least that's, that were the reports, uh, announced that they were acquiring a small Dallas brewery called uh, Four Corners, which has a Latino-inflected brand. Yeah, that last one is kind of interesting. I wrote about it yesterday in the blog, um, and I talked about how I thought the Ballast Point and Four Corners deal were really kind of mirror opposite of each other. Uh, Four Corners made like 12,000 barrels, uh, and they are very hyper-local. They have a li- one of the three owners is Latino, uh-huh. and they have kind of a Latino-inflected, this, you know, it's a, like they have a uh, one of their their logger is Sol e Luna Luno uh, Luna, uh, yeah. Luna so Sun and Moon and mm-hmm. um, some of their text is in Spanish and um, they're in Dallas which you know Dallas has forty percent Hispanic population so right. um, they're going to try to build something up from the ground and and work with uh, a clientele that's already invested in the brewery so it's a very different approach than Ballast Point yeah and uh, the uh, it's been interesting because there hasn't been too many, the craft, well, uh, I should qualify. My impression is, from, to my knowledge, there hasn't been too much uh, acquisition action happening in, in uh, British craft beer yet. And so this Beavertown thing really created quite a kerfuffle. It really did. It, you know, um, for people who don't know, uh, Beavertown is kind of the, the, the really the leading craft brewery, big outspoken brewery in favor of independent ownership uh they had a big festival um that people are not pulling out of and um uh, so when they sold this minority stake to heineken uh it was a lot of rending of cloth and gnashing of teeth and, yeah and, so, you know going back and forth on that yeah craft beer fans are gonna have to start grappling with the same things that we're we're grappling with here what happens when your your favorite beer sells out yeah <laughs> or one of the good beers sell out all right. All right. The second item on the list uh, is that cannabis continues to encroach on the world of beer. In addition to the Four Corners deal, Constellation Brands invested $191 million in a Canadian cannabis company. Whoa. Quite a lot of money. Uh, they haven't formalized plans on how to use cannabis, but other breweries have. Uh, Heineken-owned Lagunitas announced it was releasing Hi-Fi Hops, uh, two IPA-inspired non-alcoholic sparkling water beverages that are made in par- partnership with vape cartridge maker Canacraft. Non-alcoholic sparkling water beverages. So note that down for your <laughs> for your future. Uh, Wait, but does it have anything to do, other than it's in, uh, made in partnership with vape cartridge maker Canacraft, does it have any cannabis in it? Yeah, it does. Oh, okay. That's going. Yeah, yeah. The cannabis, uh, it's, uh, I think, CBD, and, and they use the terpenes and stuff, so that's why it's IPA-inflected. Uh, I see. Uh, and meanwhile, New Belgium has partnered with Willie Nelson uh, to rally support to change federal, federal and state laws to allow commercial hemp growing, and they have released, uh, New Belgium has Hemperator IPA, uh, which actually doesn't contain cannabis. It just has um, cannabis flavors. But other breweries do have CBD uh, beers out, and we have a local one called uh, Coalition that has a, brewer, a beer called Two Flowers, which has CBD oil in it. The, um, the fact that Constellation Brands is investing so heavily in Canadian cannabis is quite interesting. Well, yeah, uh, the Canadians are way ahead of everybody. They're much more 
they have much bigger business going on there. And yes. so these companies are much more sophisticated. Uh, and I think, you know, the market is developing. It doesn't really exist yet. So you invest and you hope you But what's interesting to me is this is, a, this is a, a company that has a whole portfolio of, of alcohol right. companies. And now they're bridging over to cannabis as well, which is, to me, very fascinating. Yeah, uh, sort I agree. Of as, a, as a parenthetical... The conference I was at was an economics conference headquartered at the downtown Sheraton in, in, in Vancouver, BC. And uh, when I got there, there was an international cannabis business conference going on. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's becoming a thing, man. Yeah, it's a <clears throat> definitely a thing. All right. So finally, the last news item is that Deschutes, uh, Oregon's own Deschutes Brewery, clo- finally closed on their $3.2 million deal to acquire 49 acres of land in Roanoke, Virginia a purchase that had been in limbo as beer sales have stalled. Uh, what the brewery will ultimately build on the land is somewhat less clear. CEO Michael Lalonde said that during the next year, we will continue to watch the craft beer industry carefully and adjust our building plans accordingly. They had had Headwinds. a yeah, $95 million plan to build a giant brewery out there and yeah. uh, probably looking at production numbers and trying to figure out if that would make sense and if they can sell that much beer on the East Coast. and. It, yeah, so this is, again, this is, I'm going to I'm gonna um, say something I said before, and I understand that it doesn't make sense. If you have a, if you've really created a national brand or are selling a lot of your beer already locally, then fine, I get it. But I still don't understand uh, in these days why these breweries aren't thinking about starting a new brand uh, on the East Coast rather than uh, continuing your brand. Because Right now, at least, it appears the market has spoken that these big national craft brew brands are not in favor relative to the local craft band brands. Yeah, I think with maybe two or three exceptions, that's right. Yeah. There, there is space for a, you know, a tiny number of national craft brands. but it's Yeah, I mean, there's certainly economies of scale in terms of advertising, brand awareness, all this stuff. I realize that, you, that you'd have to uh, spend a lot of extra money on those things. Uh, but at the same time, if you can build a second really popular regional brewery that's like you know uh, super popular in the Mid Atlantic region, it seems you've done a pretty good, pretty good job. But yeah, that's me. I, it's a challenging, it's a challenging question. Then you're building brand equity for this other brand that's not your core brand, and so and then you get into tensions about where you start spending the money. And yeah, I, I, I get it. it. It's it's kind of a uh, a tricky. A tricky thing, but I don't know. It still, it still uh, makes me wonder. I think uh, Deschutes is definitely. I've seen um, some reports and and heard some folks talk about how they're definitely trying to figure out how to make uh, Deschutes, Virginia, uniquely Virginian, like have, have cater to a local market out there. Yeah, I mean and that's that the pr- that's the problem, right? I mean, when you build something called Deschutes, which is <laughs> a river in Oregon or Sierra Nevada, which are mountains in California. It's really hard to, to make the case that you're this really cool local brand. That's sort of kind of my point. Yeah. Uh, call it, you know, Chesapeake Bay. I'm sure there probably is a Chesapeake Bay brewery, but, you know, something like that. Right. Anyway. It's interesting. Yeah. And we'll watch those things. Although I have to say, uh, $3.2 million for 49 acres. You give me 49 acres in Portland and tell me the price is $3.2 million, I'm taking that deal. I don't care what you put on there. You can put a chick-fil-a on there and that that's a good deal so <laughs> yeah that is a lot of land yeah. by the way 49 acres i know you can build something pretty darn big there yeah <clears throat> so i don't think they've really made a a catastrophic blunder on that the first part of that for sure yeah yeah i mean 
you can make something profitable yeah, happen totally. there. Uh, but they should they should think about it. They should take my advice. All right, Deschutes, you heard it here. The Economist speaks. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's uh, turn now to our main topic, which is the uh, scintillating, I'm going to counter-program your intro, your, <laughs> the sexy topic of, uh, of public policy and beer law. Uh, so we mentioned at the top a few ways that laws can be written to limit your access to beer. Uh, when you dig down and see why that's the case, you often find the hands of special interests. Uh, yes, how the sausage is made in policy. <laughs> the problem with, uh, as we'll talk about, uh, with beer laws is that it's also just a legacy of previous laws and then things get very complicated very quickly. So we'll talk about that. Right. Uh, so we're going to take the case of what's happening in Maryland as a case study for this. Uh, so Jeff, why don't you set this up for us? All right. Yeah, let's, let's just mention that um, up until 40 years ago, all states had laws that were based on uh, large, large, com- you know, uh, this, this mass market beer model um, mm-hmm. with large companies and a few distributors and uh, it was all very streamlined and efficient. Right. And then the little breweries started opening up and most of those laws didn't really work very well for the little breweries. So in some states like Oregon, they addressed that early in their, you know, in their early to mid 80s uh, and the, the states that adopted much more liberal laws that were uh, conducive to little breweries coming in mm-hmm. uh, tended to foster craft beer growth uh, much more than other restrictive states. And so like the South, which has uh, both tight control over uh, uh, alcohol because of the religious uh, interests, also has uh, deep, they didn't have a lot of local uh, breweries, so the, the distributors were there, there were very powerful and they wanted to keep the laws the way they were. Right. Um, so they were slow to develop in the South. Well, in Maryland, um, uh, the... This whole thing is starting to kind of take uh, take shape now. They they made rudimentary changes a while ago, and now they're really trying to open them up. And all of this, so just full disclosure, uh, the Guinness Guinness Brewery is my blog sponsor, and I was out there recently to tour the brewery, which was really cool. I wrote about that on the blog. Uh, and all of the attention on Maryland really comes because of this Guinness deal, which all this lawmaking kind of revolved around. In the end, the Guinness thing kind of was a, a sideline. It didn't actually matter that much. Guinness was not really involved in this and kind of fell down on the side of the brewers, which, uh, as we'll see later, was not what everybody expected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to acknowledge Guinness there, but I'm not going to actually talk too much about Guinness as we go along. Uh, except except there were sort of, what you're saying is they were kind of the spark that started this new round of, of legislation proposals. Yeah, because in Maryland, uh, they looked at this this... It, it, much like in Virginia and other places where the, the the states were trying to woo big projects, the Guinness project is a is a eighty million dollar project. It's on sixty two acres. It's going to bring in um, Guinness hopes three hundred thousand people to the state to or to that brewery. Many mm-hmm. of them from out of state in the first year. So it's a it's a big it's a big opportunity for the state. And they're really trying to support it, um, but they didn't inquire with Guinness about how Guinness would like them. To support them, nor did they coordinate with. Or, well, anyway, they, we're, I'm about to describe the competing interests. That yeah, were. Guinness bought an old industrial site, or was it a former brewery? It was uh, Diageo was the uh, parent company of Guinness, right. and they own their uh, way back when it was a drinks company that that uh, joined with Guinness and right. formed Diageo, uh, and so the drinks company is now the much more 
like major part of that company. Right. And they owned Seagram's. And this right. is an old Seagram's site from way uh, back when. I so see. they already owned it. Okay. And it's full of all these cool old buildings called Rick Houses, mm-hmm. which I did not, uh, until I visited that, I was not aware of these, which is. Is that where the aging happens? Yeah. Okay. It's, uh, it's a word, I think a Scottish word for rack, Rick. Ah, okay. So it's where all the racks of uh, barrels are. Anyway. Uh, but this is a pretty big investment in Maryland and Baltimore. And so yeah. it created. They created interest among the politicos to Yeah, to the politicos nice. saw opportunity. Yeah, okay. <laughs> waited in. Set this up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in 2017, uh, the Brewers Association of Maryland were trying to pass a law that would expand the hours of sale for uh, uh, beer in tap rooms. Okay. Uh, and I think they may have been trying to uh, raise the amount of the volume that you could sell out of a tap room, mm-hmm. which is another way to restrict things. Um, and then as that was going through the legislature, House Bill 1283 was introduced um, by surprise. Uh, and it was this catastrophic bill uh, that, w- that uh, would have reduced the, the hours of tap rooms for everybody in the state except the Guinness Brewery. And it was like <laughs> this really big giveaway to Guinness. Um, and it would also uh, limit contract brewing and collaborations breweries could do. It was a huge, yeah, it was a huge um, (laughs) nuke and people rallied around it. Guinness forswore it, said, we don't have anything to do with this. We don't agree with it. We don't support it. Um, And then the people kind of got involved and they amended it uh, and did this weird thing where they uh, extended taproom hours so they could be open later, Mm -hmm. but only for existing breweries. If you're going to open a new brewery in 2019, you're out of luck. Wow. Uh, Yeah. You're, you're with the old laws. Um, so that seems anti-competitive. Yeah. So that's a weird thing there. Um, so then in 2018, um, everybody recognized that that was a, one of those classic, as you mentioned, sausage deals where, uh, (laughs) two parties got half a loaf and they pasted it together and, uh, it was a bad law. So there were two competing bills in, in 2018 this year that were introduced. Uh, one was from the brewers and it would have, uh, loosened restrictions on beer sales, modernized the state beer, the state's beer laws, um, then, uh, you know, a, a lot of the, the breweries could have sold beer more easily and right. at greater volume out of tap rooms. Mm-hmm. Longer hours. And longer hours. The other one uh, came from two uh, sponsors uh, in the House of Delegates. Uh, and it would have reduced the amount of tap room sale, the, the amount of barrels you could sell out of a tap room from 2,000 to 500 barrels, <laughs> uh, which is um, 2,000 is a lot of barrels to sell out of a tap room. Sure. 500 is, is, uh, is still a fair amount out of a tap room, but, you know, obviously it's a quarter of the amount. And then as people dug around, they found out that these sponsors had family members who uh, owned liquor stores or distributorships. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they received tons of money from liquor stores and distributorships, so retailers and distributors. Because, not to be too obvious for the listeners, uh, to be insulting with pointing this out, but um, the more beer that's sold in a tap room means the less beer that goes to distributors and out to other retailers. And so these are, we always think of beer as one big happy family, but there are... Um, well, <laughs> you know, yes. there are competitors there. Yeah, although you can make the argument that tap rooms just also help create the demand, and grow the demand for craft beer, which which raises all boats. Um, well, uh, Liz Murphy, who we're about to listen to, okay. talks a little bit about that mm-hmm. uh, and points out that this... It, it's funny. You were living in Colorado uh, for a while yep. where you can only buy beer 
and I think they may have changed this now, but for for decades, you'd only buy beer at a certain. What was it? Three point two percent alcohol could be sold in in grocery stores, so you could buy three point two beer. Otherwise, you had to go to liquor. Store. Otherwise, you had to go to liquor store. And the Coloradans had this abstruse logic about how it helped breweries, and the breweries were really in favor of that. And the yeah, funny so thing there was, is, yeah, there was a proposal at the time to 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 do away with that restriction, and the breweries themselves were were uh, against that change. Yeah, and the funny thing is. It's not like they didn't have all these other examples of other states that had other laws that were incredibly good for breweries. Yeah. And yet still they were in their weird little silo. But again, it's a politics, right? They were worried about the fact that these they felt like these liquor stores were helping promote their products and this was a good this is a good way that they could compete, but in gro- in grocery stores it was much harder to to nudge your way into that market. Um, you have the big established breweries. Um, so they had this uh, this fear, but I think now and I, I, yeah, I wish we <laughs> could have checked this. Uh, but I think now that's changed uh, in Colorado. And I think that um, the examples of places like Oregon have, have shown that grocery stores are going to ride the train too when, when craft beer gets popular. So Right. And there's other places beyond grocery stores. You've got other, other retail outlets yeah. that uh, are, are good for you, especially for craft brewers. Yeah. Um, well, Maryland was in, is in the, kind of the same thing where they're having this debate about what might happen as if there are no examples of what might happen. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the people who are on the brewery side are actually much more sophisticated about this and pointing out that in other states where there, is, uh, where there are looser laws, um, you have many more breweries, you have many more uh, people employed and all this stuff. And the rising tide lifts all boats argument is pretty well established so but Liz will talk about that so uh, I should mention that the person I'm gonna we're gonna I interviewed here is named Liz Murphy mm-hmm. who writes for a paper you might not have heard about a month ago right uh, but which you will recognize now uh, she writes for the Capital Gazette which was the paper that um, suffered that horrible mass shooting uh, a couple of weeks ago that's right and uh, this, uh, the, the interview that I recorded with her was before that. And the audio quality is, is okay. It's not spectacular. I, uh, we, we spoke on a, a Skype kind of system and Liz was going to send me the audio, but then, uh, the shooting happened and I did not want to try to track that down. But because I'm always paranoid about not getting good audio, I actually did my crude, <laughs> put the mic up to the, uh, the speaker thing and I do have a really good mic so that was helpful uh and and the audio is okay um yeah. and I and I think it's uh it's certainly uh easy enough to listen to but um maybe not pristine yeah and I think it goes without saying but I'll say it anyway that our condolences of course go out to Liz and her colleagues yeah ab- absolutely and Liz has been on the kind of uh front edge of uh doing good work there to to support the families uh she's involved in a fundraiser uh with the local beer community and, and uh, uh, trying to help help out, and we do send our condolences uh, to everybody there. It's a terrible situation. Yeah, journalists are our friends, and they're good for democracy. That's right. Amen to that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so um, let's get to the interview. Yep, let's do it. All right. All right. I am with Liz Murphy, uh, who writes the Naptown Pint, uh, which you're going to have to unpack what Naptown means. Oh, it's a nickname for Annapolis okay. in Maryland. Yeah. For the uh, Maryland Gazette, is that the the paper you write for? And you also have a blog. Is that is that correct? Am I getting that right? 
So the Capital Gazette family of newspapers, that's, I'm the beer columnist for that, and one of them is the Maryland Gazette, the Capital, Crofton, West County Gazette, Bowie Blade, things like that. Uh, and then, yes, I also have a blog, um, and which, which was mostly actually taken up by my own podcast, the Naptown Pinecast, where I primarily speak with uh, people who are involved with the Maryland beer industry. Gotcha. Uh, well, what... I wanted to speak with you about is some weird stuff that's happening in Maryland. Uh, the folks who listen to our blog know that, um, or listen to our podcast know that my blog is sponsored by Guinness, and I was recently out in Baltimore to see their new facility. Uh-huh. Uh, but behind all of that is some weird machinations that are happening about house bills and uh, tap room laws and a bunch of other kind of weird stuff that helps. Uh, describe what's going on in Maryland in the beer world. Uh, it's pretty hot. It's actually made national news. We've been reading about it um, even here on the West Coast. So will you tell us a little bit about the background uh, of, of what's going on um, and kind of give people an, a, maybe a general sense and then we can dive into some of the details? Uh, sure. I, so it, I'm going to unpack this at a very high level just because this is a narrative that has been rolling out over the past two years. So it's not something that just happened this past session. It actually began last year in uh, 2017. Okay. Uh, and it actually began with Guinness coming to town, and, and not in a negative way. Um, Maryland historically has been kind of low on the totem pole in terms of how much beer it allows production manufacturers of beer to produce um, and sell through their tap room. Uh, so Guinness came to town. They are Diageo, which owns Guinness, already had a facility here in Relay, Maryland, which is outside of Baltimore. They wanted to bring back a an American facility for Guinness. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, but the laws in the books aren't really going to work for us. We need to be able to sell more through our tap room and, and things like that. And so they made this pitch to the General Assembly and said, we want to bring this economic development opportunity to Maryland, but dot, dot, dot. Okay. That's where things started to unravel a little bit. Um, Maryland, for some background, is a bit of a different beast in that a lot of states you pass a law at a state level and it impacts the entire state. It Mm -hmm. is the law of the land. In Maryland, we have something called home rule. And essentially, every county will have to adopt in their code a version of that law in order to make it legal. So, for example, one of the most common questions I used to get asked was, why does Anne Arundel County, which is where Annapolis is based, uh, not have a brewery? And it turned out because even though production-scale breweries like your Flying Dogs, your Unions, your Jailbreaks, legal totally at the state level, but the county had never included breweries as a permitted use in zoning codes, Mm -hmm. so they weren't allowed to exist. Because if you're not explicitly allowed you are prohibited so it's little things like that so there were a bunch of bills around last year's session that were intent on bringing guinness to maryland some of them were just bringing guinness to maryland so it would just be legal for them as an exception in baltimore county Um, a couple of others with guinness being on board as a collaborator would actually modernize the brewing uh, the brewery laws in Maryland for all Maryland craft breweries. Mm-hmm. 
Um, then there was just this one little plucky bill that's only goal was to roll back tap room hours. Now, the tap room narrative is not exclusive to Maryland. We're seeing it a lot more across the country as tap rooms become a more viable business model for smaller microbreweries. Um, you know, retailers and bars and restaurants are starting to chink a bit. You know, is that going to impact them? Is it going to hurt their businesses? Are we going back to pre-prohibition era vice, you know, saloons and things like that? So 1283 was this plucky little bill that essentially said for taproom hours, we want to roll them back to be uniform across the state. So the reason why that's important to know is that previously before this bill, it was what was dictated by the county. So in some places you could be open till midnight, maybe two o'clock, maybe it was 10 o'clock. We don't know, mm -hmm. but it was based by the county, not the state. So they wanted to roll them back to really restrictive hours. Nobody took it seriously. Everybody kind of ignored it because it was like ridiculous. The whole, the whole banner of last year's session was bringing Guinness to Maryland and having this great potential to make Maryland craft breweries rise up in the ranks along with the rest of the country. Right. And that is not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's something called a crossover day. Okay. Where bills from either the House or the Senate need to cross over by that day or they die. Uh -huh. And we'll have no chance of being resuscitated until the following year. Okay. On crossover day, there were like five or six bills. Like there were literally numerous ways for the General Assembly to get it right. Uh, and they killed every single bill except 1283 and then made it the rider to bring Guinness to Maryland. Amended the heck out of it did things like make contract brewing illegal, which we all know is not good, um, restricting hours, all of this weird language in there. Like, it was a mess. But Guinness would get what they wanted. <laughs> now, let me interrupt you here. Why, um, surely there are uh, constituents behind these changes. So, uh, you know, wh why, who, who doesn't want contract brewing? Like, who, who was behind that provision and um, these changes that were being made? Do you, is it is it known or? It depends on who you ask, and it also depends on who, when you ask them. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> so I spoke to just a, a few members of the House on Economic Matters Committee, which is where these bills are heard, and you're either given a favorable favorable report with or without amendments, or an unfavorable report, and the bill is not allowed to go through. Okay. So that committee. There is a lot of, how should I put this? It is very hard to think that these changes weren't made without the hands of special interests being involved. Okay. Yes, that, that um, seems right. <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, it is an impossible pill to swallow to think that this crazy Frankenstein's monster of a bill came out and everybody threw their hands up and said, I have no idea where it came from. Yeah, that's right. Like, like even the original sponsor of the bill, uh, Talmadge Branch, uh, he's a delegate. He, he was the original sole sponsor of the bill, and he said, I don't know where these amendments came from. All I know is that this is the bill that I thought everybody had settled on, and that was kind of the, that was kind of the, the message that was given to the rest of the House of Delegates. Because once it passes out of committee, it then needs to go to the rest of the House of Delegates before it can actually pass over to the Senate. Okay. So what was really crazy about this is that this bill passes almost unanimously 
And all of the brewers are like, are you kidding me? This is like, I'll have to shut my doors tomorrow if this were to pass today. Wow. Like my business would be gutted. And all of these houses, uh, all these delegates started saying, oh my gosh, we were told that the brewers were on board, that they were at the table. And that was not the case. Okay. It was just flat out not the case. Um, so that was just last year alone. So finally... <laughs> The brewers between a, between a rock and a hard place, and quite frankly, thanks to a lot of consumers out there getting involved, calling their delegates and their representation, you know, they were able to finally get a seat at the table and basically take this bill that would have just been a complete disaster and made it a little less terrible. Okay. Um, so they still had to keep things like the hours, like they had to make the hours uniform across the state. Okay. Um, Except what was really kind of a bummer is that the concession they made was that they allowed the old breweries who had their paperwork in by a certain date or already had their establishment open, um, they could keep their hours and were grandfathered in. So it creates this kind of unfair playing field uh-huh. for new breweries who are moving in. And it sucks, too, because those breweries, like the Flying Dogs Unions, they didn't want that unfair advantage. They uh-huh. didn't act for it. Um but yeah, so that was just that was just last year. Okay. So Peter Franchot, who was our comptroller, and comptrollers, by the way, are the regulators of alcohol. Okay. Um, he put together the Reform on Tap Task Force, which spent which I was a member of, and we met. What was it? Once every few weeks, pretty much from May until I want to say October. Okay. Um. And it was essentially just picking apart every single issue and bringing different people to the table. Like it was a forty-member, it was a forty-member task force. Holy moly, that's a big task force. <laughs> well, yeah, but it ended up working out because not everybody could make it to every single meeting. Okay. Um, but you know, they had uh, you know retailers, distributors, um, consumers like myself. Um, brewers, all different walks of brewery life, so to speak, or the beer industry life. Okay. And some of them got pretty heated. Mm-hmm. You know, I bet there they was did. a lot of there was a lot of talk about you know we're tr- you know how much distributors and retailers contribute to their communities, which I don't disagree with, but they would always tell these stories like you know it started with like just one person in a truck, and it's like so did this brewery. <laughs> <laughs> chance over decades to prove yourself and to become these upstanding members of the community and this is an industry that's in its infancy and because you're feeling a little bit infringed upon and what is supposed to be a free market that how is that fair to not give them that chance and to be clear that one of the uh the friction points here is that um the more breweries sell from their tap rooms, the fewer sales go to distributors and retailers outside the tap room. Is that is that the tension point that you're alluding to? That it, it depends. Again, it depends on the day because the minute you start chipping away at that argument, then they retreat to the pre-prohibition moral high ground. Hmm. We don't want to go back to the tied house structure. Mm-hmm. The tied house structure is essentially, and this is a very gross overgeneralization for listeners. But it's essentially, you know, before Prohibition, brewers would talk to people and say, hey, do you want to own a bar? Give us $3,000, we'll give you everything you need to start a bar. 
they end up having to water down beer, overserve people. You know, brewers were not always the best characters in this narrative. <laughs> right. But the brewers today versus the brewers of yesteryear, like this is just a completely different narrative. They, you know, breweries instead of being people who bring people into debt and ruin lives, you know, they are the first indicators that a that a depressed community is about to be revitalized. Union Craft Brewing, which just opened their new tap room. Yeah. It's in a place called the Union Collective, where they had the choice they needed to expand, and they could have just done it for themselves. But instead of just opening in a new, larger facility, they opened in this massive warehouse that is now going to be home to numerous local businesses. Right. A coffee, a coffee roaster, Earth Trucks, which is a family-friendly gym uh, with rock climbing, um, the creamery, a well-crafted pizza. You know, they went out of their way to create a community hub, as they called it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a different position around it. This year, in terms of the session, it was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were a bunch of different bills, one of them including the Reform on Tap Act, and I'll try to make this summary a little bit quicker than the first one. Um, the Reform on Tap Act was what came out of the Reform on Tap Task Force, where essentially after hearing all of these all of these different discussions and presentations and from different people in the industry. Uh, Peter Franchot, along with his office, made a list of recommendations that would modernize across the board the brewing industry in Maryland. Okay. There were also a bunch of other little bills. So in case the big bill didn't work, you know, the brewers were still up there on the hill making the connections that they needed to make. And it was little stuff like production increases, um in maryland i think it's wine and also spirits i may be wrong about that there's like a little fund that's pulled off of taxes and that helps to promote maryland wineries we wanted to do the same thing for brewers um so we had all of these little bills and the reform on tap act and then they introduced (laughs) and then out of nowhere the house economic matters committee decides to introduce a bill called 1052 and to be honest it's one of those things where, why did you create an enemy? You, you didn't have to do this. And basically, 1052 undid 1283. And 1283, even though it wasn't the greatest piece of legislation, still increased production caps across the board, still did a lot of things that people started building business plans over, and 1052 was going to undo them all. Okay. What's really messed up about it, though, is what happened at the House Economic Matters Committee hearing, which I testified at, and it went for more than eight hours. Wow. Okay. And so so what happens on – it's something called alcohol day, so all the bills are, are heard on both sides. Uh-huh. So you have bills being heard on the Senate side, bills being heard on the House side. According to people who went to the Senate side and were testifying there, you know, it was normal debate. You know, you had some friction, you had some pushback, but it was like a normal – legislative debate okay on the house side i would encourage anybody to watch that publicly accessible video Hmm. it was forced contrition Hmm. on part of the house economic matters committee i thought last year you said 1283 is bad which is it 1283 or 1052 and members of the committee would force brewers to thank them for passing 1283 repeatedly on multiple occasions to the point where I stopped counting after 13, they would go out of their way to remind the brewers, the only reason you exist is because of this committee. And 
so what what's where was that all coming from what's what was going on with that it was a lot of it has to do with some pre-existing relationships in the maryland legislature okay um (laughs) peter francho has risen in popularity with private citizens because he doesn't take guff from the legislature Mm -hmm. and as a result it came out later in a Baltimore Sun article that 1052, which, by the way, they raked brewers over the coals for and made it painful for them, and then later admitted it was a message to Peter Franchot. Mm. Like, what are you doing? Wow. Like, why would you do that? That is, you are messing with people's livelihoods and their businesses. Huh. So what's also, so obviously, Reform on Tap Act failed spectacularly, but it was eight to nine hours of forced contrition of nastiness just like obviously waiting us out they put that bill last and all of these other bills that would have actually been helpful they killed them all Hmm. all of them there were six other bills and including that one where it's like you've already approved to do this for maryland wineries and others Hmm. this is just a natural thing let's go ahead and do it for breweries too killed Hmm. that too Hmm. because the delegate who sponsored the bill yeah spoke out last year about 1283 he did. I'm sorry, I missed that. He spoke out last year about 1283. Okay. So, so it just, it sucks. <laughs> so when you ask, like, what's the headline right now, it kind of sucks. And it, But it's not just for the obvious reasons of what's happening. Uh-huh. I think what really, I, I spent a lot of time covering this last year, a lot of sleepless nights. And I remember getting home after the House Economic Matters Committee hearing and thinking, like, I'm going to have to write about this. And I was like, I'll do it tomorrow. You know what? I'll do it next week. I'll do it. <laughs> and, and finally, I'm just like, what, what is the point? Not because I've decided to stop fighting or stop advocating, but it's gotten to the point now where the headline about Maryland beer is always a negative. And what everybody who was there or knows anything knows exactly what that turmoil was like during that day. Mm. And it was horrifying. I can't believe they were doing that to their own constituents. Huh. businesses that they say that they're also trying to uplift and protect like it was just it, the the bias was clear throughout the entire day but so when i say it's it's sad for that reason it's also sad because stories like what's happening at union collective that is unique in a time right now when breweries are struggling to figure out what a growth path looks like that is something unique hmm. and different and this total physical manifestation of what it means to be a brewery that uplifts a community. You know, it's, it's, it's burying the narrative that we have, in spite of all of this turmoil, people who are so fiercely proud of the state making incredible beer. You yeah. know? And that bums me out. And so where, where, is, where, where have we landed? What is the law and what, what's going to happen going forward? I mean, nothing really changed this year. All of the laws tanked. There was one other one where <laughs> this is my personal favorite. Uh, they wanted to form their own task force because everybody gets a task force to determine whether or not Peter Francho should still be the regulator of alcohol. Okay. It's <laughs> fun. No, that's not happening. Um, but it was just, it, it's ridiculous. Like, just, it is. It's quiet until next session. I, I think. I think what's really going to be important, and I started seeing a lot of this this year, is that, you know, 
retailers and distributors, especially in a town like Annapolis. Yeah. I mean, these are guys who sit, who sit, who have sat on county councils, have very close relationships. Like Speaker Mike Bush, who's the speaker for the House of Delegates, he's up for re-election this year. I don't know if he'll win the primary, but his treasurer is someone who owns an Anheuser-Busch distributor. Uh-huh. You know, like, it's just, like, little things like that. They've so that... had relationships, not just for years, but for decades. Uh-huh. Their lobbyists all have offices that sit right by the state house in Maryland. Uh-huh. You know, they have been lobbying for years. And um, until Guinness came to town, and quite frankly, it you know, it's good that this happened in a way because it was a catalyst for a lot of a lot of very important discussions that have just been ignored for a really long time. Yeah. But I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, you want me? Hold on. Okay. Brewers, on the other hand, however, haven't been building these relationships for decades. Right. Right. In Maryland. And what I did see though last year is while there was a lot of stuff going on with task force and and it was very rightfully you know a headline of what was happening i think what was missed is that brewers started getting in front of their legislators making them understand that you know you're trying to protect those small businesses by doing this but we're small businesses too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and uh i take it that the brewers are not happy with the way things are now and they want to see the law change again uh, from where it is, is that correct, or are are they happy to just live with what, where you guys landed? I think, and now again, to be clear, I don't speak on behalf of the Brewers Association of Maryland. Sure. So this is purely speculative and based anecdotally on what I've heard. Okay. There are definitely still changes that need to be made. There needs to be reform. I mean, the reality is is that in a lot of benchmark categories, Maryland is very low or near the bottom. Mm. Um, I think the thing that is troublesome is the fact that brewers are forced perpetually into a defensive posture whenever they want to ask for anything. Mm-hmm. And that's really difficult to deal with when you have small business owners who are trying to scale up business plans or even business owners from other states right we're potentially eyeing maryland and then they end up going elsewhere i mean virginia is literally offering money not just to brewers and planning but breweries that are open to come there right whenever we tried to make that argument though at this year's house economic matters committee it was immediately met with well virginia is not that great we've had x number of breweries still open here it's like you're not even trying to quantify the lost business or what kind of toll this is taking on a reputation. And that level of either willful ignorance or idiocy is like, why are you on the economic matters committee? (laughs) You know, whose economy are you actually trying to protect? Yeah. Like who are you actually trying to benefit? And so, um, the constituents, when you look at this, the, um, the reason just to, Kind of bring this all back home the reason yeah. uh the law is where it is uh is has to do with like who are the you, you you talked about uh the was it the distributors or retailers who who were warning of uh a return to prohibition era stuff oh um okay. in maryland they have they are very closely tied to each other okay which is funny because i also talked to distributors and 
retailers independently sometimes for people who work there and they're like we support breweries we think this is dumb okay. <laughs> but i have to go with my association right so it's the associations who are really pushing for the limits mm-hmm. on on the brewery oh, yeah. on the brewing stuff uh and how so now you have an 80 million dollar project happening just outside of baltimore with this guinness project how much is that going to be a catalyst for for any kind of future change do you think i mean it already has been uh-huh. otherwise this discussion wouldn't have been happening right we would have continued to see incremental gains, a lot of things knocked down in the legislature, but they've made this a headline issue. Um, I think the biggest challenge in terms of going forward is what does this mean for the future? Because we're kind of at an inflection point. Okay. And this this past session was not really a positive indicator. Mm-hmm. You know, at, at some point, the House of Delegates, and particularly that committee, makes needs to make the decision of, are you just going to always be in the way? And if so, can you just stop blatantly lying about it? <laughs> you know, they're, they're, or you're actually going to give this a chance because so many other states are reaping the economic rewards of this. Mm-hmm. You know, Ohio is a great example. I mean, they went from millions in revenue to, I think it was some sort of insane billion number <laughs> in terms of what craft brewing is doing for them. And you're seeing, you know, bipartisan bipartisan legislation to create, you know, Ohio proud stickers that just go on Ohio beer products. Right. You know, and it's, we have a, considering we're a state that loves to put our flag on anything and like declare everything's like, you know, it's from Maryland. We love it. We seem to not apply that same kind of logic to Maryland manufacturers of alcohol. Yeah. That's a shame. I, I think, you know, I, I think there's a really great opportunity, but in terms of what Guinness does, I mean, you can't, you, you shouldn't be looking forward to see what kind of catalyst of change that is. It's already happening. Okay. Uh, if you, if you were the queen of the world, um, <laughs> what, what would, what would you hope to see the law would, they would fix in this law uh, that, that would make it possible to go, you know, forward that was on a kind of a level playing field and that maybe retailers and distributors could live with? That's tough um, because I think it's something that you legislate about, but also educate about. Yeah. I think on the education side, it's an understanding that a taproom experience and a bar experience are it's a false equivalency. Okay. Um, I whenever I go out and I know anybody who goes out to breweries and tap rooms, we don't consider them the same experience. Right. Um, it's it's just not. Um, it's also not a vice peddling sin den, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I go to Peabody Heights up in Baltimore quite a bit and it's on old Oriole park where the Orioles used to play before Camden yards Okay. and it's a beautiful historic site, but inside of it has a library and playroom for children. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, book clubs meet there. I remember I <laughs> took my mother who is 74 to her first brewery was flying dog and she, she just learned what Google was like literally a month ago. This woman did not, <laughs> she did not internet. She had no idea about anything that was going on in Maryland legislation. She lived in Virginia up until recently. And I remember asking her, you know, mom, I'm just curious. Do you feel comfortable here? And she said, yeah, I do. And I said, do you think this is the same thing as a bar? And to be clear, I did not give her any background on the argument. She right. had no idea. She thinks this writing on the internet thing is cool. <laughs> right. Um, And she said, well, I don't know. I know it's different. And I said, how? And she's like, oh, look, there are people like me, old people like me. 
I can come here. I wouldn't go to a bar. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh So I think it really gives an opportunity to unite people of all ages and interests to do something where, yeah, there's alcohol, sure. But you're not just going to sit at a bar and watch the game and do whatever. You know, it's a different experience. In terms of Queen of the World legislation, guys, we really need to get, like, with the program in terms of production limits and and what on-premises sales like just the number of limitations and red tape that people have to go through in order to be successful but not just be successful and grow like we're never going to attract major opportunities like another guinness to this state guinness had property here right why do you think they looked at us first (laughs) because they had the building they had the equipment it was all here they need someone to say yes legally you can turn the lights on right we're never going to get another economic opportunity like that because we're busy fighting like children at the child's table at thanksgiving and guess (laughs) what the kids always think the parents don't see what's happening but the adults in the room see what's happening maryland is becoming a punchline Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that things uh, turn out better. I will say, um, I think most states go through this this uh, kind of oh, yeah. thing. We um, the, the states that got a, a, a leap, I'm from Oregon, and we have, I think, five of the top 50 largest craft breweries, mm-hmm. um, only 4 million people here. Uh, and it's partly because we changed our laws in the 80s and it made it a lot easier for breweries to grow and there was a lot of support for them. That's so. what we should have done. <laughs> so you're, uh, you're a little, um, you know, maybe a little bit behind on that. But uh, eventually it seems like, I mean, we could, I could, the, the, the wars over uh, alcohol laws and beer laws uh, in the 80s are full of vivid uh, kinds of examples, just like you're talking about uh, between oh, yeah. different, different groups and it's always ugly and you know it's like always darkest before the light so uh, <laughs> i hope that the crap in the middle that's yeah. my favorite way to put it yeah no it reminds me of this story i saw this video recently it's of a rabbi telling a story about growth and he said you know it, it's about a lobster he said you know lobsters what they do is they grow so big that they break their soul and then you know they have a new one that's bigger and, and fits who they are um and you know if we were to treat a lobster the way we treat humans they would go to the doctor and we would give them painkillers. We would do everything to make sure that they don't grow and they don't break through their shell because it's really painful. And we don't want them to feel pain, mm. but that doesn't work. Growth, real growth comes from pain. <laughs> <laughs> That's why pain is in the title of growing pain. <laughs> so yeah. I think it's just a matter of making sure people stay active and involved and they understand what's happening in the world around them. I mean, I know it's like impossible in terms of, in terms of what's happening in our political landscape. But I will say one thing. I've never seen one political issue unite more, a more diverse cross-section of voters than I have with beer. Yeah, nice. <laughs> I, have a, I have a thing I say a lot, which is politics divide and beer unites. So there you go. I love it. <laughs> Another yeah. example. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you uh, joining us for the podcast. Um, I'll have my partner in it. Uh, Patrick listened to this and he's an economist so I'm sure he'll have a lot of cool stuff to reflect on afterwards cool and, great. thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it yeah I'm sorry we couldn't do it in uh, Baltimore but I'm glad we managed to do it uh, over the internet so the thank wonders you. of technology that's right and so uh, apropos of, of what I 
told Liz, I would like to talk to you, Patrick, a little bit about this uh, in, in kind of general terms. Um, I think we've kind of delved deeply into the Maryland issue, but I'm interested, we, we teased at the start of the podcast, how public policy and economics intersect mm-hmm. and, and how um, there's, you know, there's a way in which uh, economists build these beautiful mathematical models about how <laughs> markets will behave. And then things like uh, weird public policy get in the way and, and influence things. So um, do you have some wisdom to drop on us about about this uh, public policy? <laughs> well, well, wisdom, I'm not so sure. But what <laughs> I'll say is that, you know, economists, uh, especially academics like I am, um, we like to just think about optimality and efficiency. And so we tend to just we get to ignore the messy realities of, of politics and we just think about what's optimal. And the general sort of takeaway from modern neoclassical economics is that, uh, you know, sort of complete well-functioning markets uh, are optimal in the sense that they're efficient, that they maximize the amount of surplus available. They don't, uh, there's nothing, I always, I always say this over and over again to students, there's nothing in there that um, says anything about equality. So uh, that doesn't mean that, um, the, the rewards from that market activity are going to be sh- uh, uh, shared equally, um, but it means that uh, the um, uh, amount of surplus is maximized, and then you can worry about sort of distribution later. Um, but the the thing, so that's all, that's great when there's when there's sort of free and unfettered markets um, that have all of the conditions. But generally, what we think about when we think about economics, public policy is times when the sort of assumptions are surrounding a free market uh, breakdown, when there are things like um, externalities, so when there's sort of pollution from an economic activity. Mm-hmm. Or um, in this case, you might worry about public health and alcohol sales, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, drunk driving. Un- drunk driving, underage drinking, all of those things you could classify as an externality of individual consumption. They're costs that uh, accrue to society that are outside the... Um, uh, that are not paid by the by the producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that you um, uh, we come across in uh, in economics is also this sort of uh, um, worry about co- competition because one of the things that um, underpin a, a, an optimal market or an efficient market is that there is ample competition, and so that's the other thing that, particularly early on, or I suppose in the fifties and sixties, that there was a lot of concern about competitiveness and in the beer market. So some of these laws uh, are driven by the externality concern. Some of these laws are driven by this anti, this uh, competitive um, concern. And then there's this other aspect. This isn't really particularly economics, I suppose, although um, uh, there is economic explanation for this, which is that once these uh, sort of um, uh, middlemen get established, uh, they're basically... Um, you could argue mostly rent seekers and, and the fact that they've been carved out this exclusive access to a um, to a market and um, they get uh, they live on sort of the rents that they get that this this margin that they get to charge uh, between uh, what they what they buy beer for and what they sell it for uh, but that creates an entrenched interest that has money uh, right. and in politics that means that these things can be very hard to change because they'll fight for their 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 interests and without the type of legislative protection uh, their business might not exist right. um, which then makes you think as an economist uh, can we justify the existence of this business if the market wouldn't support it anyway so in other words if they're doing such a great thing for craft brewers why wouldn't craft brewers pay for it 
Um, that's one of the questions I ask myself. I don't really know the answer to that. Well, and I think they do. Uh, and that's why mm-hmm. even in states where there's self-distribution, you find a, a, you know, a pretty sizable majority of brewers do go to distributors because distributors do this whole thing. And if you do in-house distribution, you essentially create this separate business, which mm-hmm. is a distribution, which involves trucks and coordination and sales and all this other stuff, you know, sales to retailers and all this other stuff. So right. There. Yeah. But your point is well taken. Uh, so, uh, economics and public policy sometimes have a, you know, there's, there's things, there's optimal policy that economists will propose. And of course the messy, uh, the messy truth of politics is that often there are compromises that are made. And so you get a, you get a, maybe an imperfect policy. Um, and then, yeah, you just have this, uh, this sort of, um, uh, policy permanence that happens. It's much harder to change something that's already there than to, uh, to start from scratch. Right. So, uh, yeah, is that what you're looking for? <laughs> yeah, I think, that's, I think that's great. I think that's a, a lens we can think of uh, when we think about beer laws, which all, uh, you know, across the state, uh, across the states, they're all different. They're all weird. And, yeah. and, um, and just in general, any policy you make creates incentives. Some are direct and the ones you intended, and some are indirect. Right. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily have intended. So things like these taproom hours, um, uh you know, is it is it uh, generated by a, a concern for public health, public safety, or is it generated by a concern for the market position of of uh, retailers and distributors? Uh, uh, I'm not sure, but um, but that's one of those things that um, is going to create potentially these uh, these knock on effects that um, you might not have thought about when you uh, when you made the the law in the first place, right? Knock on? Does that mean unintended? <laughs> yeah, uh, not that's not necessarily a term of art in economics. That's, oh, okay. that's Patrick speaking. Oh, I see. All right. <laughs> Oops. Uh, speaking of knocking, <laughs> perfect timing. Just knock my my mic. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Well, uh, I guess we have um, covered that, and I would love to hear from folks. So just. Uh, a reminder, Jeff at beervanablog.com if you have comments or questions that you'd like to uh, ask about laws or tell us about your own weird laws. And Yeah, we'd love own... to hear about the, the interesting laws in your own state. Yeah. Um, so do let us know, especially yeah, if you're a brewer. Yeah, <laughs> how that's you deal, right. How you deal with it. <clears throat> yeah, when you talk to anybody who's in the industry and they get talking about laws, then you hear weird stuff that's always fascinating. So yeah, let us know. All right, so now we're going to, speaking of uh, getting in touch. Uh, now we're going to move on to the, the mailbag and the Sherpa. Why don't we start with the Sherpa? What's your Sherpa for this? We actually have a Sherpa this time. We have a Sherpa. I was at a uh, little pub in town that you should probably know about. Mm-hmm. It's called Sessionable. Mm-hmm. I've heard of it. And they're, uh, uh, so, sorry, everybody who doesn't live in Portland, but we're going to talk about <laughs> local pubs now for just a minute. Um, Can't escape that we live here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, they serve uh, low alcohol beer, so almost all their beer is five uh, percent or below. Mm-hmm. Um, they have started to make concessions to IPA drinkers. There are three IPAs, so they have like <laughs> twenty or thirty taps. I was going to say it's a little hard to <laughs> to not have an IPA on tap in Portland. Yeah, and they were getting. I, I think um, it was probably those three taps were probably getting fifty percent of the attention. There, <laughs> so there it is. But one of the beers they had on tap was a German. Schwarzbier, which I have not heard of before, so I immediately ordered it because it's one of my very favorite styles, and it's called uh, Fungstadter, um, which is from the town of Fungstadt, which is near right. 
uh, Frankfurt. Uh, and, you know, Schwarzbeers are one of those interesting kind of styles that they're, it's such a marginal style at this point. There's not so many commercial examples and there's a fair variability in the way they're made. Some mm-hmm. of them are quite uh, roasty and dry and some of them are fuller and have more uh, caramel, uh, nougaty center. Uh, I kind of like the balance and this, this was, I think the best Schwarzbeer I've ever had in my life. Wow. Yeah. It was just amazing. I, Really, really, really loved it. Wow, that's saying something then. So this is the Fungstadter Schwarzbier. Yeah. From Fungstadt. Very nice. Which is a uh, PF. Pronunciation there. I'm going to... Yeah. <laughs> I have yeah, no, yeah, I have no right. idea, but you got to say it with conviction. And it sounds like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, PF, Fungstadter. Uh, yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to check out Sessionable. That's yeah, exactly I what so. I need in life is a place that focuses on low alcohol beer. Because in, in Portland, it is hard. Yeah. We were just out the other day. Uh, riding our bikes around on a hot day and you know we'd be getting someplace hot and sweaty wanting something nice and light and it wasn't always yeah call out to uh breakside dudes lower alcohol beer it's middle of summer they had like yeah thank you i wasn't gonna call them out but (laughs) you did so yeah yeah that was uh yeah i agree all right all right so now let's turn to the mailbag uh why don't i take the first one for you because this is more a question to you all right uh this is from christopher martin uh, do we know anything more about Christopher? Uh, he's local, okay. uh, Oregonian anyway. Okay. Um, I'm not Cri- sure he's from Portland. Christopher wants to know your thoughts on Dave McLean leaving his brewery, which is Magnolia in San Francisco, right? Yep. Uh, yes. Uh, so we got that news. That was a little bit of a news item, which I considered putting in there, but it was minor enough. I didn't know that anybody would care. Uh, <laughs> Magnolia was purchased by old uh, Oud Birlesol and New Ing- New Belgium, uh-huh. this kind of weird thing. And uh, so Magnolia is uh, um, right in the middle of the Haight-Ashbury scene. It's one right. block from Haight-Ashbury. Uh-huh. And Dave makes English cask ale. Right. That's his, that's his passion, and that's what he's been making there for 20 years. Uh, when they bought this, um, when they bought the brewery, they decided they were going to completely change it and make it a wild ale thing and and uh, that's what the Ode Beersel, which is a lambic maker yeah. uh, uh, was brought on on for and 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 they didn't and Dave decided to stay around and, and uh, he was going to be an advisor and all that and then we heard a month ago or something that uh, he was leaving the brewery and uh, that was kind of sad um, but uh, I looked into it a little bit first of all it's not a great fit they said that they were going to continue to make the cascales um, but you know you always wonder how that's not their passion. It's not, and they're going in an entirely different direction. So how long are they going to continue to, to be invested in, in that phase of things? Yeah. And it seems pretty hard for a small brewery to be really focused on English cask ales on one hand and uh, wild Belgian ales on another. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> uh, the cool thing is that Dave has recently started Admirable Admiral Maltings, which is one of these micro malter maltings, uh, and he is that's that's the project he's working on. So I think that's probably one reason he left is yeah. it gave him an opportunity to focus on something else, and um, so that's I. So I feel pretty good about it. I think Dave has landed on his feet, and he's doing something he likes. He's gone to a different passion project, and now Magnolia will become its own separate thing, and they can both have their own visions. Yeah. Well, later. I don't live in San Francisco, but I would lament the the ending of uh, of a Cascale-focused uh, brewery, which makes me think um, to mention that uh, Machine House up in Seattle, which uh, makes some pretty fabulous English beers, just opened a, a more central uh, uh, pub. 
I know. Uh, and I saw pictures of big, long line of I saw that beer too. engines, <laughs> and I just thought, Portland, come on, man. There's got to be there's got to be enough room in Portland for one of these. I know. And if not, Machine House, you know, think about your next. Yeah, pub, that's right. Pub being down here, we well, need you <laughs> south of the Columbia Please. River. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. <clears throat> all right. So our second one comes from Alexander Ye. I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, Alexander. Forgive me if I didn't. Um, he and some friends are considering uh, uh, a trip to Portland. He lives in Texas. Uh, and he writes, I have been particularly interested in trying to be there, Oregon, uh, to attend the Portland Fresh Hops Fest. Uh, wet hop beers are something that are in a bit shorter supply in Texas, he notes. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um, is that even one of the festivals we should be shooting for if we were uh, to just make it for one event? Should we even try to make it for a particular festival, or would our time be better spent uh, being there in the right season and going from brewery to brewery? Good questions, all. It is a good question. Uh, in our last pod, or a recent pod, somebody asked about festivals and what the best festivals are, and we failed to mention the Fresh Hop Fest, which is, I think, the best festival in the, the year. It's, yeah, I mean, it's the one, uh, what I would say is that it's the one thing that really justifies a festival, right? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, a lot of these festivals are around, they're fun, but uh, but yeah, this one is one that happens around harvest season. Uh, well, these festivals happen right around harvest season. You've got all these beers which are uh, very um, uh, of the moment and unstable, so you need to uh, taste them. Um, but this gets to the second part of the question. So let's first talk about the festival. So yes, uh, we failed miserably in not mentioning this. Yes, <laughs> it's it's uh, one of the few festivals I still attend. <laughs> right, me too. And we will. Uh, I always look forward to it. And we'll be there in a couple of months, so um, three months, whatever it is. Yeah, so uh, yeah, you should definitely come and you should try it. It's something um, really new and interesting. Brewers have become much more sophisticated about how they use wet hops. So you get much more diverse and interesting beers. Yeah. than you used to, uh, and generally the, the quality is quite high now, uh, whereas before it was very hit and miss. Um, so I'll say two things uh, about uh, festivals versus going from brewery to brewery. The benefit of the festival, of course, is you get to be there and you get to taste a whole bunch of uh, fresh, uh, wet, hot beers. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, as I say, I still go do it. Uh, be aware, however, that each beer has a, has a little you know bell curve in terms of timing mm-hmm. and so if you go to a festival you'll find beers that are a little old um and when they get old they're not nearly as nice right um the, yeah, i think that's what argues for the festival though because it's yeah, does, your investment is very low so it's not a great beer you just go back and have the next one and you 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 much increase the likelihood that you're going to find one of those sublime right on the moment yeah and it also and it also makes you aware uh, makes you uh um, knowledgeable about how those beers are are very um, ephemeral. That's right. And and how you realize getting it in a bottle a couple weeks later, you know, in Texas is probably not <laughs> ideal. Um, yeah. uh, that's the only. That's the other thing that would sort of um, uh, argue or potentially I go from going to, to to pub to pub is hopefully they've they're serving it at its peak. But I would ne- wouldn't necessarily guarantee you that either so i do think it's worth coming to a festival if you really want to learn about uh wet hot beers you really want to get a sense for them yeah come to one of the one of the festivals and there are a bunch of good ones that the oregon brewers association put on yeah i i was actually writing an article for travel oregon about fresh hot beers just this week and 
Alexander pointed to a, um, a place on the uh, Oregon Brewers Guild website where they list them, and there's something like five right, or six Guild. now. My apologies. Uh, yeah, what did you say? Association. Oh, Brewers Guild. Yeah, Guild. Yes. Oregon Brewers Guild. Guild. Yes. Um, and there are several of them. I think the, 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 the two probably that I would recommend are the, the Portland one, which is great. It's in Portland, and there's a lot of other brewers in Portland, so it's easy to do. The big one and the old one, which was founded in 2003, which mm-hmm. is kind of a long time ago, is yeah. on Hood River. And uh, it's the, I think it's the biggest. Um, but getting to Hood River can be a challenge if you're only going to be in Portland. So one of those two. Yeah, are, although it's a nice setting for a... It's a beautiful setting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so highly recommended. In fact, probably more recommended than most. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So thank you for that question. You allowed us to correct one of our errors. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, I think we've made it to the end of another scintillating podcast on policy and economics. <laughs> it was scintillating. You're right. Uh, <laughs> so thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Of course, I'd like to encourage you, as everybody does, to rate us, subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, helps other listeners find find us. So please do. Um, you can also sponsor us if you'd like. Uh, oh, that's right. We're available. We forgot to mention that at the beginning. Yeah. Always uh, oh, at the end. <laughs> Uselessly. <laughs> when everyone's tuned out. Uh, uh, and a few, uh, a few more words going out about how to contact us. Of course, if you'd like to send us some feedback, we'd love to have it. Um, so please do. Uh, you can email jeff at beervanablog.com or visit the Beervana Blog Facebook page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so send us your uh, questions and comments. You can find Jeff blogging at the Beervana blog and tweeting at Beervana. And you can find Patrick tweeting at Beeronomics. All right. Uh, you know what? We didn't taste beer this time. Yeah, we didn't taste beer. It's, it's the <laughs> so morning. we have nothing to cheers with. <laughs> so we'll just no, say... It's, it is kind of a first. Uh, I think this is the first time we've ever not, yeah. not actually uh, had beer on the podcast. There um, you go. Yeah. So I guess I feel just, I am at loose ends now. I don't even I know. know how to end the podcast. Goodbye, Patrick. All right. Goodbye, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs>